0: Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to another Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition. Breaking down the stronghold bad opinions and false notions of the enemy and setting up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and together we are studying Christian dogmatics because we believe that when God speaks, he doesn't do it just so we wouldn't hear, but that we would hear, believe, and speak his word back to him. It's just as St. Paul exhorts all Christians to hunger for the truth when he says, watch your life and doctrine closely persevere in them, for the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. But you, Christian, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. And that is our goal, not only for ourselves, but for the sake of all, that we might be comforted with the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. I got with me today... Pastor Jeff Reese, Senior Pastor of Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church of Tacoma, Washington. Pastor Timothy Winterstein, he's Pastor at Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington. And Pastor Matthew Gunia, he is Pastor at Ascension Lutheran Church up there in Niles, Illinois, just outside Chicagoland. And we're going to be looking at Dr. Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, Volume 1, picking up around page 37. Uh, and we and we spent a lot of time just on the last couple of pages and so I think we do need to kind of recover a little bit of the main idea because the the, the beginning of this paragraph is going to say in the second place and it's kind of important to know then what the first place is uh, aside from me and every game I ever play obviously and because uh, we're supposed to laugh at that one um no it's lo- yeah <laughs> loud silence thank you thank you. Uh,
1: yeah, that's you.
0: what I needed. That's what I needed. It makes me feel better. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the first and the second place, these are proofs of some other thing. And this other thing is what he's really driving at here, which is that Christianity is the absolute religion, which, well, I guess if you're a Christian, maybe you're like, well, yeah, of course it is. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But it's been several hundred years now that we have people within the fold of the visible Christian church, churches you know, kind of across denominational spectrum that don't believe Christianity is the absolute religion. And the philosophy of religious theory states that it's just one of many and that it basically developed from, from the others very slowly. And we're all kind of feeling our way to truth. And uh, that idea is it, well, it's still out there. It's still here. You guys got thoughts about that before we go into the proofs?
1: I agree. (laughs) It's that, that is the, I mean, and and not only not only is Christianity not the absolute religion, but the scriptures are not the highest uh, authority. So uh, those those may go together. I don't
0: know. Where do you see this today, though? I mean, Pastor understands you say that. You say I agree because I think part of it is like, well, how do I talk about that? It's everywhere, right? But uh, pin it down, like put it on something, not a specific name necessarily, but how does someone experience? Someone saying Christianity is not absolute today because they don't they don't use that language.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I think I, I mean I think it, it goes along with the the sort of generalized tendency that we have to we feel very nervous about saying something saying something is true because automatically when you say something is true you sort of invalidate uh, or say something else is false and so if if someone says Christianity is true, uh, and you understand what Christianity's claims are—that Jesus is the Lord, and that He's the only Lord, and that this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the only God. Then anything else that is is not that is called false. And so I think it 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 comes down to sort of not wanting to—we uh, get a little nervous or a little um, about saying any, about saying something else is false. And so I, I think it's it's in that. It seems to me that at least it falls in in that kind of area.
2: We see it stemming from two different things. One of them is arrogance, and the other one is a false sense of humility. Uh, with arrogance, we say that we, as a person, I can figure out what is the word of God and what is not the word of God. My brain is in control, not the word of God. We see it with the heart as well. I know this is true because I feel that it's true. So those would be in the sense of arrogance where I put myself above the word of God. We also see it in false humility. Who am I to say that this is true or that is true? Because you have your truth, I have my truth, as something similar to what Pastor Winterstein said. I don't want to tell you you're wrong, really, not because I think that you're wrong, but because I kind of agree with you. I just don't want to say it. Okay.
0: Uh, that's very well said. And what Pieper's concern is too, though, is so. You, if you let go of this language of, of absoluteness, absoluteness, you let go of certainty. And so he, he he points us back to. I mean, why would we want certainty in the first place? Well, he points us back to the proofs for Christianity's absoluteness, and the main one is that it is an absolute salvation. It is. It is finished. To quote Jesus on the cross, it is. It is a complete. The carious atonement for the sins of the entire world. And it's on that idea, that foundation that we can say Christianity doesn't really need anything added to it anymore and certainly doesn't need anything subtracted from it. It is because Jesus the man has absolutely walked out of the grave after absolutely dying that he has proven he's the absolute God, right? All, almost everything that Christianity can claim at all either it has to be absolutely true, well or, or what are we doing? <laughs> right at all
3: well right it, it well that's the whole th- this it's not uncommon out my way to hear people talk about being both Buddhist and Christian or uh, there's a woman who made the news a couple years ago who claims to be both Muslim and Christian um, it, it doesn't work because if if you're Christian and something else then suddenly Christianity is not complete in and of itself and if Christianity is not complete in and of itself, then Christ's death
0: and resurrection is not enough for you. And so then, like, what is the point, right? Because because isn't the <laughs> if yeah. the point of Christianity is not the forgiveness of my sins fully achieved in Christ, what good is it to me? Right. I mean,
3: especially if you look at like Buddhism and Christianity together, that doesn't make any sense. Well, and actually, Islam and Christianity actually waters down both Islam and Christianity uh, when you when you really think about. Islam because Islam claims an absolute truth as well um, but Buddhism is of course more fluid and so you, you get that idea and you have to reduce Christianity to this sort of fluidic uh, wisdom type religion uh, that, that gives you special insights into living your life in the world and it, it just doesn't really just doesn't really
0: work yeah, it's more like just a bunch of good advice. I got to say, I, yeah. I, I'm definitely more confused by the person who wants to be both a Muslim and a Christian than the Buddhist. I mean, at least Buddhism's got sort of a philosophy edge to it. And so I, I right. can see where you could go wisdom with it, but I don't get...
3: <laughs> you, you can't be both Christian and Muslim without reducing both of them to something Buddhist-like. Yeah, right. Uh, because because Islam and, and Christianity both claim an absolute, uh, where Buddhism is a much more fluid, uh, abstract um Relative type
2: thing. I once gave, you can do it if you're only you can do it if you're only like focused on the culture of the religion and not about your own salvation. Right.
0: I once yeah. gave a talk at a, a Canadian pastors conference and there was a, a gentleman, a Lutheran gentleman there from India, who came up and spoke to me. And I think I had talked about postmodernism, if I'm not mistaken. And and he came up and he wanted to tell me, "You guys are in the West. You're so far behind. You think this is new?" This is Hinduism. It's all been Hinduism all along. It's Hinduism is the blob religion. It just comes along and it sucks them all up into truthiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and I mean I I don't know how to how to kind of quite segue that back in, but it certainly is something to be a, not not surprised at, aware of as we see, kind of Hindu like practices popping up all over the nation as well. It's it's not ironic, I don't think.
3: Well, most That's of the question. new age, most of the new age stuff is essentially Hinduism. That we deal with, like people who want to believe in uh, karma and reincarnation and all that, which is really silly because they don't even get reincarnation right. Uh, the people, people in the West talk about reincarnation like it's this positive aspect of religion. Uh, reincarnation is a cycle of misery, according to Eastern religion. Uh, it, it's something you're trying to escape from, not something you're trying to embrace. So we don't even do it. We don't even do it right when we do it.
1: Well, it kind of get it kind of gets back to Peepers' point about uh, what what is the Christian religion? Is, is it just like, you know, among this sort of history of religions sort of thing where you have a definition of religion and then you see what things fit into it and how they have similarities or differences? Or is Christianity a completely unique thing, the only religion in the world where God comes to you where it's not the religion of the law but the religion of the gospel? And this kind of gets back to that. If you, if you think that Christianity is about something else, then you can sort of start to talk about, okay, how does it fit with these other things? And is it such a, is it kind of a moral system where I learn what to do and what not to do? And then, yeah, you know, I kind of like what Islam says about this over here. I kind of like how Buddhism treats this. Um, But if Christianity is the, the only religion of the gospel where God comes to you and Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life and salvation through His own flesh and blood, crucified and resurrected. If that's what Christianity is, then it's, it doesn't. It kind of goes against the grain of any other uh, moral or ethical system. As, as a Christian, I'm not interested in truthiness.
2: I'm interested in the truth. How do I know it's true? Why do I know it's true? Because my eternal salvation depends on this and the eternal salvation of those I love and those whom I serve in my congregation, it depends on this too. So I don't need like squishiness. Well, this might be true and perhaps that is true when this other religious uh, institution has another idea that's interesting and worth considering. No, I, I don't want any of that. When, when someone is on their deathbed I don't want perhaps, I don't want to say perhaps, and no one wants to hear, well, maybe this or maybe that. You want your pastor to show up and say, this is true, this is salvation, look to Jesus, and say things about Jesus that are actually truthful, that you can point to Scripture and say, this is how you
0: know that you are saved. That kind of gets back to what Pastor Winterson said as well a moment ago, which is one of Peeper's earlier points about Christianity being the only religion of grace. And if you lose absoluteness, the only thing you stand to lose is grace because the law is everywhere else. you got plenty of that. And it may be right, it may be wrong law, but but the thing that is distinguishing Christianity, uh, which which we stand to lose again in the loss of absoluteness, is grace. Hence, the first reason to trust in a complete absoluteness of Christianity is the complete death and resurrection as the complete vicarious atonement of Christ for us. The second reason, and this is where the paragraph today comes in, in the second place— the Christian religion is perfect and unsurpassable because its source and norm is not the word of men, but God's own word, which is perfect and beyond criticism. Now, I got to kind of half smile as I even read beyond criticism because the last hundred years of, of Christianity and really two or three hundred, the word of God has been anything but beyond criticism.
1: Yeah. He he, I think he has to mean something along the lines of uh, it's 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 claims for itself, if they're true, uh, are over and beyond and above the way that human reason criticizes. Because obviously, I mean, he and the, I mean, the, he's writing because people are criticizing uh, and sort of claiming other things about the scriptures that they're they're a mixture, as he goes on to say, a mixture of human and divine thoughts, so so I don't think he 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 can, he can't seriously be saying that it's beyond criticism in the sense that nobody criticizes it because he's in fact dealing with the fact that people are criticizing it, uh, and so um, in the sense that uh, in the sense of if the word of God is true uh, and if it is the perfect witness to Jesus Christ, um, then it has to be above and beyond our our rationalistic, uh, criticism of it. And, uh, I think that that's really the, that's really the point that he gets into. I, I, really, um, I, you find more and more that if you think that the scriptures are a mixture of human and divine words in the sense that, that, the that there's God's word in there, you just have to find it. Eventually you're going to get rid of the whole thing. Uh, because why do you need the scriptures? If you are the judge of it, And if you decide this is the part that's God's word, well, you already knew that anyway, according to your own reason. So you don't really need the scriptures anyway, except as sort of to back up what you already thought in the first place. Um, And um, then what do you need at all? There are three ways to approach the criticism of a...
2: Uh, secular document. Uh, one of them is to look for the flaws in it because there's going to be some kind of logical inconsistency. There's going to be some type of like wrong usage of words. So you can stand outside of the document and you can point out the flaws or, you know, uh, alternatively where there's like good logic. A uh, second way is to look for the sources behind the document you're studying. Well, how did we come to this? What other like rivers flow into this, uh, bigger river? Um, what, what, contributes to the, uh, oh, gee, we're going to have to rewind and redo this. No, nope. no, you're um, good. You're good. We can hear you. <laughs> uh, what other sources, what other ideas contribute to the creation of this document? And the third way to do it is, do I like it or do I dislike it? It's purely so- Objective: You are not to do those three things with the holy scriptures. You submit yourself to it. It's not, do I like what God says in the book of Job or the book of John or whatever? God says it, I submit myself to it. You don't look for the sources behind the flood narrative, for example. It, it happened. God is an eyewitness. He is the origin of it. Uh, you don't look for the logical flaws or the or the inconsistencies. They are not there. If you think you see inconsistencies, it's just further proof that God. God is still the teacher, and you're still the student, so you do well, again, to humble yourself. That's the proper way to approach Scripture.
0: I think what you just described there, Pastor Gunia, is what they officially call historical criticism, which it gets a bad rap in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod for really good reason, I think, uh, because it did some bad things with the Bible, but it, it actually is the way that you scientifically do need to approach real history, history books, Right.
4: Oh yeah, it, it's a very helpful, very useful. We come to a lot of uh, a greater understanding of the truth and historical events by using the historical critical method. Uh, and it's useful for looking at things like the Declaration of Independence, uh, the letters of some uh, important figure in history, uh, or even literary works, novels and things like that. Uh, but when it comes to the Word of God, since its origin is not of man, but of God, man can't stand in judgment of a work that was produced by our Creator.
0: And what, uh, what Pastor Wunderstein? you were saying as well, I, you kind of you kind of were undoing my jest about uh, the word being beyond criticism. I totally agree with you. I don't think that peeper is saying that uh, that the Bible, uh, literally, we can't see it criticized, but I think he's right. very intentionally grabbing that word and throwing it back in people's faces and, and saying, like all the stuff that you're even calling, Higher criticism, it's not. (laughs) It's far, far far lower criticism. It is. It is foolishness. Is I think what the Bible really calls it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, and and I mean, that's really the. It's really kind of the fundamental point. Are is the Bible a book to which we come and stand in or sit in judgment over it and decide? how we are going to approach it and how we're going to take the words and how we're going to understand them and how et cetera with me as the subject, uh, or is it because it testifies to Christ? Is it the living word, uh, that he speaks to us, which does stuff to us? Um, that those are, That's a fundamental difference on how, how you approach the, the scriptures at all. And so, um, and, and, peeper is kind of highlighting that is is this uh are these the words of god in jesus christ or are they the words of men and we treat them like any other words
3: yeah and he goes on after uh the sentence we read earlier you know for the church of our day this is the written word of god the holy scriptures sola scriptura is scripture indeed the very word of God? And that question there gets to the very heart of the, the issue.
0: I think it's important there too, though, that that sentence in the middle for the church of our day, this is the mm-hmm. written word of God, the holy scriptures. Mm-hmm. It, it, and I remember, you guys remember this from seminaries, one of those like kind of silly seminarian distinctions they teach you, but the, it's really kind of important that that the word of God is actually bigger than holy scripture. Uh, in mm-hmm. the sense that there there is Word of God that hasn't been written down. there was there was prophecy of old that that wasn't written. God in his eternal wordness is is bigger than what He's revealed to us. But that for us today, mm-hmm. I mean, even Jesus, right? Just sitting sitting by the seashore whatever he said was the Word of God, even if it was like, I like pizza, right? Uh, mm-hmm. but, but but for us today, what we have, the only access we have to this is the Holy Scriptures. And that's the point that I think hits our pride. That's the point people want to fight against and don't like. Right.
1: I, I mean, I think that that's true. That's the way we we do. It does affect our pride. We we want to, and it happens, frankly, it happens in the Roman church where the scriptures are part of a wider tradition, which is passed down uh, through the magisterium. And I mean, what, what do you have to judge that by? You know, you have to judge everything else by the words of the magisterium or the papacy. Uh, it also happens on uh, the exact, what we would view as sort of the opposite of the Roman Catholic church, where you have... Ah, uh, things like signs you see outside of churches where it says God is still speaking. And uh, don't put a period where God has put a comma and God's going to say some stuff in the future, and you, you that's as much God's word as anything in the scriptures. Um, but the fact is that the there's no foundation underneath those sorts of claims. Uh, eventually, you got to have you either have everything could be God's word or nothing will be. Um, but we have to kind of say, okay, well, this is what we got and we're going to stick to it. Uh, Jesus says he goes through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He says, that's all about me. So that's a pretty good place to start. Uh, so if then you have this old Testament scriptures or what we call the old Testament, and then you have the prop, the apostles who testify to Jesus. This isn't an easy thing. I mean, trying to, there's been. Uh, all thousands of years of sort of discussion of what actually is the word of God. And, uh, and so it's not an easy thing to sort of, uh, work. You know, I was thinking about this earlier today. You have, you have Paul saying something like, this is my opinion, not the word of God, but it's a word that's in the scriptures. All right. So how do you take that? And so you, you, it's not, a, it's not like it's sort of like, well, any, rational person should be able to see this. You sort of have to uh, decide uh, how you're going to make the claim. And uh, are you going to go by Jesus' words, or are you going to go by your own reason and what you think is right?
4: From Deuteronomy chapter 29, uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. So even in Holy Scripture, it acknowledges that there are some things about God, some acts that He has performed that He has not revealed to us. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't worry about those. Worry about the things that God has revealed to you. Love them, cherish them, do them, believe them.
3: Yeah, yeah and there's also the fact that when we uh, when we say the we say the pastor, when he preaches from the pulpit, preaches the word of God. Well, he doesn't just stand in there and read scripture verbatim, usually, um, but he preaches off of the scriptural text that he's using, uh, maybe more than one. And we say that's the word of God. But we say it's the word of God because it comes from the text of scripture, which God has given to us. And so that's where you go to to, uh, 1 John chapter 4, uh, where we're told, you know, you need to test these things, um, and and where do we where do we test it? How do we know that our pastor is preaching the word of God? Well, we take what he's preaching, and we line it up with the word of God, and if they don't if they don't agree, then we have a problem. Um, in fact, a lot of people don't realize that one of the reasons why we speak the Nicene Creed either immediately before or immediately after the sermon is so that the people. Are having our confession of faith standing right next to the pastor's sermon so that there can be a, a comparison.
0: And that's that's a piece I think that's really important to, to reemphasize as well that the word of God doesn't change. And so if if God's gonna say something today, it's not gonna be something different than what he said. 1,000 years ago, or, well, in this case, 2,000 years ago. He's not going to come along and, and take away what he has revealed. Uh, I think it's the author of the Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But, but the way that most religious thinking, uh, which now is very popular, I guess, uh, for us today in, in America particularly, it kind of approaches it as if God's, he's a bit flighty. Like he's just always kind of changing his mind. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, there's no such thing as progressive revelation. What do you mean by that? Well, okay. Uh, how many times has the Book of Mormon changed in the last 200 years? <laughs> don't don't um, ask
0: any Mormons that; they won't be able okay. to tell you.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, no. And uh, but you can go. You, there are copies out there of, of uh, 19th century copies of the Book of Mormon, and you line them up with uh, the copies that are floating around that are printed more recently. And there's all kinds of differences because it is because you have these progressive revelations. You know, the whoever the bishop of the Mormon Church is at a given time can can make a revelation, which can actually alter or change uh, what is what is written in the Book of Mormon, and that's one example. Um, but the idea, for instance, that uh, uh, sometimes people will talk about God's word, like when we're dealing with uh, today's issues of homosexuality and tra- transgenderism. And what Scripture has to say about that? Some people will say, "Well, that you know, yes, this was spoken you know many you know millennia ago uh, to people because it it fit that context." But now today, uh, it it's different. It, that doesn't work. That's not. We're the ones that are that are uh, that are causing the change to happen. God does not change.
1: I think that's related to kind of how we started in the sense that, uh, what finally, what does it come back to? Um, where, what is the assurance that, that the word of God is true? And finally, I have to always come back to the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. Um, Mm. because fundamentally Jesus is the word of God and there, and the scriptures testify of him. And so what, what determines whether the scriptures are true or reliable is the fact that this Jesus who speaks these words through his prophets and apostles, that he's actually risen from the dead. And, uh, um, that's, you know, people, people have asked me like, how, do, how do you know that these things are true or that this, that because Jesus is risen from the dead. Um, otherwise, um, we're, we, we, we're going to have trouble sort of getting out of the fact that these are, are words that are written down in a book, and we are going to have trouble thinking, that, how are this, how is this different from any other book? And then the criticism uh, that we use to judge whether other books are telling the truth or not, um, we're going to apply to the scriptures, and you know, we're gonna, we're gonna find ourselves sort of in a swamp of our own making and our own reason, which is gonna, you're gonna have trouble getting out of that.
0: If you want to if you want to apply uh, historical criticism to something apply it to the resurrection of Jesus with all of the witnesses from that first century era and uh, well, what you'll find it is this about the most solid history that you're gonna find from that era or any era before it uh, there's great confidence to have in the resurrection of Jesus and and you're gonna believe a guy you're gonna believe a guy's the son of God who rose from the dead but he can't actually speak the truth in a way which manages to last for a couple thousand years what kind of God do you believe in not much in, in my mind you're listening to Cross defense on Worldwide KFUO. Got to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment.
4: Michael Walter leads Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Senior in the Daytona 500. February 18th, 2001, is a day no one in the NASCAR world will ever forget.
2: As she always did, Stevie Waltrip, wife of racing legend Daryl Waltrip, wrote a Bible verse on a piece of duct tape and passed it to NASCAR Hall of Famer Dale Earnhardt to put on his dash.
1: Daryl said he'd get out of his car and go looking for the piece of duct tape if he didn't have it. Daryl's younger
4: brother won the Daytona 500 that day, Dale Earnhardt. Attempting to block
1: oncoming traffic for him, lost control, hitting the outside retaining wall. Dale Earnhardt died on impact. The Bible verse still affixed to the dash from Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run to it and are safe.
2: Brought to you by Museum of the Bible.
0: Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news, reliable and trustworthy. KFUO, your pioneer of Christian radio, AM 850 and KFUO.org. The message is clear. Welcome back to Cross Defense, your worldview demolition, rebuilding, reformation, stronghold. Looking at Dr. Francis Pieper and the certainty we have in our religion, in Christianity being absolute because of the absoluteness of what Jesus has historically done and, therefore, as we were talking about just on the other side of the break, as a result of what he's historically done, the absolute certainty we can have in the words he has left behind for us. Uh, Pastor, uh, Pastor Reese, you had one more thing you wanted to say about that.
3: Yeah, just that if if we do not have any certainty in the Word of God, if we do not have any certainty that God does not change, then how can we have any certainty in our salvation?
0: And I think that's Peter's point, right? That, that right. if you get rid of Scripture, you get rid of the Atonement. If you get rid of the Atonement, you get rid of grace. You get rid of grace. What do you got? If, if the Word of God is just a collection of well-meaning trivia
3: or bits of wisdom uh, to guide us in this life, then what does it have for us in the life to come? It has nothing for us. Uh, there is no certainty. But we have the certainty, uh, as Pastor Winterstein said, Jesus is risen from the dead. Uh, Death no longer has dominion over us. We have certainty in God's promise for us.
0: Now, you took us, uh, back when you were reading ahead a little bit before, you took us to this statement, is Scripture indeed the very Word of God question mark? And he answers that. He says, well, Christ and the apostles assure us of that. I guess I, in my snarky way, would say, well, Jesus seemed to think so. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and where does he point us to? Because I, you do get this argument from Christians today that the Bible, particularly Roman Catholics, I think, that the, that the Bible doesn't say the Bible is trustworthy. And so therefore it's not trustworthy, which is a weird kind of inverted circular argument because because I'm going to step back from just a second before we look at the verses. I'm going to say that the it's not on us to use the Bible to prove the Bible is trustworthy. That claim is like self-evident in Jesus being risen from the dead and sending his apostles with these words. It's up to them to say the Bible is not uh, trustworthy because the Bible tells us that it's not trustworthy. And, that, and I'm not talking historical criticism either here. I'm talking like where is the verse in the Bible that says when God's word comes to you, it will be true for a little while. It's on it's on them to prove that because the, the book by its definition stands set apart. You guys got any thoughts about that?
4: Well, anytime you're going to approach scripture that way—that uh, the word of God is transitory—that what's true for this group of people in this day and age on that continent is not true for this other group of people in this other generation—that's just attempts to create God in your own image. Isn't it amazing that when you approach scripture thinking this is an admixture of both the word of God and the word of man, that God always ends up agreeing with what you previously thought before you approach scripture? Um, It's the same thing over and over again.
0: That's that's genius. Can you just say that again one more time? Because it's like, it's so true.
4: I, I was just saying that when you put yourself above the Word of God and try to figure out what is God really saying and what is really the opinion of man, that it always ends up that God agrees with you. Uh, what you thought before approaching the Word of God, God yeah. backs you up gives you a pat on the back, you're such a smart guy, that's what I was saying all along.
0: So the first passage of scripture that Dr. Pieper points us to is is not one I would have even thought of going to. And when I had to look it up, I was like, oh, that's kind of a weird place to go. But it makes a lot of sense, actually. John 10, 35, in which Jesus, while talking to the Pharisees and basically uh, accusing them of not believing in, in him, as an aside, like as a secondary thing, it's a throwaway line, states that the scripture is unbreakable. So here's, here's the verse by itself. It's not even a full sentence. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot, and the scripture cannot be broken. It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? But let's, so let's take it in its context. Verse 34 In answer to their accusing him of making himself God, he says, Is it not written in your law, quote, Old Testament, I said you are gods? And this is kind of his proof that, look, you, you can use the word of God, you can use the word God loosely the old testament had no problem with that and if he that is the one who gave the revelation of the old testament called them that is the old testament saints gods to whom the word of god came like on the basis of them having this is a strange move on jesus part he's basically saying because the word of god came to them therefore they were divine and here's the aside scripture cannot be broken. Back to the main argument. Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world—that is me, Jesus—you are blaspheming, because I say I am the Son of God. So, right. So, if even the Word of God in your presence makes you divine, well, then isn't the guy who actually came from the imminency of the Holy Trinity actually divine? That's the main point. But in the middle, you have this just side word, and it's it's very very straightforward. Scripture cannot be broken. What a, what a wonderful statement. You almost wish it just kind of stood apart on its own as a verse.
3: And this is just in the midst of him, Uh, he has spent most of the Gospel of John, uh, there is this back and forth between, uh, at least up to this point, there is this back and forth between Jesus and the Jews, uh, or the Pharisees, but John generally just references them as the Jews. Um, And throughout it all, and especially it's probably especially poignant in, in John 5, Jesus is basically telling them, you don't know Moses, and you don't know Torah. And here's how I know that you don't, because you don't know me.
4: He called them gods to whom the word of God came. My first knee-jerk reaction is, what how is that even possible i don't understand it that actually rubs me the wrong way a little bit and then jesus follows up and the word of god can't be broken it says right Mm -hmm. there in scripture doesn't matter if you understand it or not doesn't matter if you agree with it or not doesn't matter if it sends your mind in loop to loops or not it's there in holy scripture therefore it's true it can't be broken just submit yourselves to it
3: he, he's referencing Jesus is there. There's a reference there. Uh, you you can go back to Psalm eighty-two, verse one. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. That that may very well be, or most people believe that's what Jesus is thinking of when he uh, when he speaks about them as gods. Um, and I'm, I lost my train of thought.
0: That's okay because it's like it's pretty uh, cool, though. In the midst of the gods, he yeah. holds judgment. Again, the God in His speaking, in His judgment, in what He says, is complete. And that's kind of the point. That's really the point of the entire book of the Psalms. Frankly, it's all it dwells on mm-hmm. over and over again. Is the is the completeness of God? So right. Yeah. Arise, will God judge the earth? Is how it ends. How can He do that if His word is if His word is not trustworthy?
3: Yeah. So basically the jesus pointing out that the the old testament uses the word gods even to describe people who stand in the place of god in a in a sense the earthly judges um and so if that's the case then why is it not appropriate for me who is the son of god to make
4: that claim i i I want to touch base on what jonathan said jonathan you are absolutely brilliant uh yes on the judgment day, God is not going to say, okay, you group of people, I'm going to judge you this way, and then you other group of people, I'm going to judge you by a different standard, and then a third group of people by a third standard, because, you know, God's wishy-washy, right? No. uh, God tells you what is truthful and what is not truthful. He tells you what to believe. He tells you how to live. He tells you uh, about His judgment, and He tells you the way of salvation, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, So, the scripture cannot be broken. This is how it is for all people of all times.
1: I, I think that there's an even uh, in addition to saying every single word uh, is unable to be broken. It's, it's almost like a, a chain, too, because you, you see how this kind of works and, and it makes it opens up the scriptures for you. For example, like something like creation and you see what Jesus does or, or what the scriptures do and how it runs from creation to new creation, uh, and that, that there's a a continuity between God's works, uh, and actions within that creation, which he himself has made. Um, and then, and then we who believe the scriptures cannot be broken, we do something like, uh, where we, where we forget to talk about the resurrection of the body and the new creation at the end. When in fact that's what he's been doing all along, and we talk about dying and going to heaven, uh, forgetting that the scripture cannot be broken from the beginning to the end. This is what God is doing. It's all about creation stuff. That's why Jesus has a body. Uh, it's why it's why he rises from the dead bodily. It's why it's why there's going to be a new creation that's going to cover the whole earth and not just. Uh, You know, get out of the earth and go to heaven. And so, like you can trace all all sorts of these themes: creation, salvation, God gathering His people. You can trace these all the way through the scriptures because the scriptures cannot be broken. They are they come from the one God, the one God who speaks and cannot lie, and therefore not only each word but all the words together um, cannot be broken. And and that's for our assurance That's for our, uh, that we can rely on the God who has spoken. Uh, the, he will surely do it because he is faithful who has spoken. Um, and so it really brings the emphasis back to the speaker uh, and not just the words, but the one who speaks them.
0: Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. Although that's kind of what his next statement after these Bible verses is going to get into is, well, didn't men write this down? So, but I totally, I couldn't agree more. The the next passage that he would that he points us to is the one I would probably think to go to first. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And if you, if you read in the context of this one, you find it's where I pull a couple of the verses that we say right at the beginning of Cross Defense every week, right? As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believe, knowing from who you learned it. And then he talks about uh, Timothy's mother particularly. But then he gets to verse 16. Very famous verses. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I mean, and the things what was so frustrating is that, so you pull that verse out, like someone says, the Bible never says that it's without error. And you pull that verse out and you say, look, all scripture is God breathed. It's from God himself and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, courage. and they say, yeah, but that's not what it means. Because they've already taken this position of judgment over Scripture, they are now free to take the verses about Scripture in Scripture and cast them aside and make them not as valuable, right? So this is why, again, I keep saying, you know what? The onus is on them. So you show me the verse where it says, where it says Scripture being God breathed is full of errors as well, and you just can't find that because, as much as I love this verse, it, it doesn't win any arguments. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, this is Do you think people was living in the same kind of situation?
3: Yeah, he was. I mean, let's face it, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, we, we like to think parochially that we somehow have it worse off in this regard, but we don't. Uh, this was the problem that Jesus was dealing with with the Pharisees. This was the problem in the first and second century church when Gnosticism was rearing its ugly head. Uh, this, is, this has been the problem all the way through. Do you really believe that the Holy Scriptures are the Word of God, period? You know, that, that, that's that's the issue. Um, and how do you get around? I mean, I, I know that this scripture doesn't win any arguments. Ultimately, no scripture will win arguments uh, b- because it's not about convincing so much as praying that the Holy Spirit would work through his word and, and uh, bring someone in faith to believe the scriptures. But how do you get around all scripture is breathed out by God and be able to say, well, you know, scripture isn't free of error. Well, Wait how is it at error if it's breathed out by God? What are you yeah. saying about God
1: here? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it actually, I think this actually goes back. I think there has been a progression and people is sort of dealing with the, uh, you know, the earlier part of this progression of the understanding of scripture um, that, that to, to put a human definition on what it means to be without error. So, so we say, well, this is what a book would look like if it didn't have any errors. And then we say, does the Bible live up to that standard? Instead of saying, the Lord has given us this word, we believe it because it's the Lord's word. And if it doesn't quite fit our standards, what does that have to do with it? The point is, is sorry, phone ringing. The point is not not whether it lives up to our standard, but whether it lives up to what God says it is. And so I think, so it goes back to that where people say, people... Out, coming out of the Enlightenment and and sort of the what what really is higher the higher criticism is saying um, that uh, here's the and modernism and rationalism saying here's the definition of what it means to be a perfect book well the Bible isn't that therefore it's not perfect well then the, from the other side there was this defense of the Scripture as being a perfect book and we're going to show how there are no contradictions and no errors according to something that's not even The scriptures claim about itself. The scriptures claim about is not is not it's a perfect book according to human standards. It's that it's the word of God, which is those are two different things. And uh, we 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 have to be careful that we're not fighting on the wrong battlefield by trying to prove the scriptures fit some human standard of perfection.
0: And I guess it's that battlefield issue. That's my point about, you know, making them. Have to be the since they're coming in and changing the teaching of historic Christianity and saying the Bible now is no longer trustworthy when it always has been. Make them prove that. Like, why should we just let them kind of assume the high ground in the argument? We should. We don't need to like defend ourselves. We're in the fortress. Yeah, but but to do that, we can't cede our confidence in the Word of God. And that's where I think what you said there about not applying the wrong. Standard of perfection, or or letting them do that, and the example that comes to my mind most quickly. There there are many of these, but I, I still remember uh, hearing someone talk about how in the Psalms it talks about the Lord has set the earth on its pillars, and someone had pulled that verse out and said, "Well, obviously the earth is in space, not on pillars. See how stupid uh, the Bible is." And it's like, well, yeah, if if you're gonna treat it like it's a science textbook. When it's poetry about the beauty of creation, you're, you're going to miss something. If you can't understand poetry, if you can't understand symbolism, you can do this with revelation. You can do this with with the eschatology in Matthew 24. So fighting on the right battlefield is, is absolutely essential.
3: I think that's a really good point that so often we allow the opponent to frame the argument. Um and i've seen i've seen many christians who were well-intended and who were right they were dead right about what they were arguing but they allowed the opponent the non-christian to frame the argument and therefore they they couldn't win it because they were playing on a totally different field to mix metaphors Sorry.
0: Oh well, no, but it makes a ton of sense. A home court advantage is a big deal in sports. All the mm-hmm. more so, you take a soccer team and put them against a water polo team in a water polo, uh, in a pool. Well, the team with the pool, who's used to playing in the pool, is going to win over the team that's used to playing on the ground. So, again, don't go right. fight on a battlefield that isn't your battlefield.
3: Well, Ar- and, and as far as framing the argument, if you're not framing the argument correctly, then you are not actually arguing, truly arguing from the foundation of Scripture. If you allow... If you allow the unbeliever to frame the argument, his understanding of, for instance, like you you use the example of misunderstanding poetry, um, if you allow him to go down that vein of argumentation, you've already lost because he because you're not even you're not even starting from the foundation of scripture itself. if if you're not even starting from an understanding of what scripture is truly saying.
4: All of that is true, and yet it's still important to say that when talking about the nature of Scripture or salvation or any theological topic, it's not—you don't win day by your own reason, by your own wisdom, by your own ability to argue the correct way or frame the arguments. The Holy Spirit does that as he works through Holy Scripture. Everything you guys have said is true. God baptized our brains as well as our bodies, and we, we should use the gift that God has given us. Uh, Yet at the same time, we can rest assured that it's not so much that I will convince you to believe in Jesus if I could just say the right words or argue the right way. It's the Holy Spirit working through us and through his chosen means to do that very work.
0: I I think that's exactly what I'm arguing for, Pastor Gunia, in, in, in this way. That when when we go and try to answer all their criticisms of the Bible, we step into the realm of reasonableism or or rationalism or whatever you want to call it. Rather than standing in the realm of faith in which we don't, the, the word of God doesn't come to debate us. It comes to declare things to us, to proclaim things to us. And if somebody rejects that, like that's on them. They're they're being obstinate. they're They're resisting the Holy Spirit. And so rather than, you know, banging your head against their conversion, I'm not saying don't have a debate or an argument or or talk carefully with those who are willing to talk. I'm saying don't argue with the scoffer. Don't answer the fool according to his folly. But instead, learn the Word of the Lord so that you can proclaim it to those who want to hear because there are those who want to hear, right? Faith hears the word and believes
3: right. And yeah. and I'm, and an I'm saying essentially the same thing. I'm not saying, Here's how you win the argument because you're probably, well, you're often not going to win the argument even on your best day. But but what happens is if you allow the opponent, if you if you if you play by the opponent's rules, or you allow the opponent who does not understand scripture to frame the uh, the debate. You, and you step into that framework mm-hmm. you have stepped off of the foundation of scripture and so you are no longer arguing from the foundation of scripture and that's the problem yeah yeah, yeah. not that you can you, you can lose all kinds of arguments and still be right. Uh, a good a good debater doesn't have to be right to win the argument. you're not concerned about winning the argument you're concerned about standing on the truth and if you step off of scripture into the framework of your opponent then you are no longer standing on truth.
4: Being right and still losing an argument that's just called a healthy marriage
1: uh. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, it is sort of the point though that that you're kind of wasting time if you're not coming from the right perspective of what the scriptures are meant to do and and the the point in second Timothy there the very first thing, they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. so if you're not starting there um it's, it reminds me of a uh, um uh, what's his name? The biologist, molecular uh, Richard Dawkins, talking in his book about how uh, the scriptures can't be a good model for human behavior or for Christian behavior because look at the book of Judges, and I want to say, of course, because that's not the purpose of the scriptures. But if you if you do believe that that the scriptures are sort of this model you know, basic instructions before you leave earth and it's a model for your, your moral behavior, you're going to have trouble with the accusation or the, the bringing up of the book of judges. But I say, of course, the book of judges is not a a model for, for your behavior because that's not the point of the scriptures. So again, it's about what is the purpose of the scriptures and, and, and that's really, that's what it comes down to. And, and so um, when we're, when we're talking uh, about the scriptures um, frankly, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're you're not going to be able to get to the point of the, of the scriptures anyway, and you need to have Jesus proclaimed to you before you can get to the scriptures yeah,
0: they don't, uh, they don't do any good. It's like the the Ethiopian eunuch, right? reading Isaiah is like, Hey, Philip, what on earth? You
1: know I can't figure the, this thing out. Yeah, or the disciples on the road to Emmaus right? Uh, they They don't see Jesus <laughs> very literally.
0: Yeah, like he's, he's right in front of their face. The, the, that Rick, Richard Dawkins comment, by the way, I mean, I, this is defeating the purpose of what we just said about being above the argument, but the argument that judges the, the Bible it can't be trusted with it because judges has bad stuff happening to it. it just, oh, that drives me crazy because isn't the whole point of judges? Like, look, this bad stuff is what happens when people do bad things. Yes. Right. <laughs> like, right. it's, it's right. not in any way trying to say be like this.
1: Yeah, and... The judges, by the way, is a pretty good uh, description of modern America. Religiously, um, we we know the words for God, and we still do some religious things, but we've missed the whole point and we've forgotten the story. Um, and uh, we we do what's right in our own eyes because there is no king in Israel, so to speak.
4: Um, and and I so. love the logic of what you've described there too. I don't like what this says. Therefore, it's not true. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, talk talk a little more about that, Pastor Gunya.
4: Well, you look at the Book of Judges or, or any biblical book, and you could see both uh, good people doing good things, uh, good examples for us to follow, and wicked people doing wicked things, uh, examples for us to avoid. And when you find the examples of things for us to avoid or something that, that doesn't quite... Um, agree with your own modern sensibilities, people look at that and say, well, you know, I disagree with that, or, well, this is patently evil, therefore, since it's in the Bible and it contains something I don't like, uh, I'm not going to believe anything that's in the Bible. Uh, Not only does that approach the scriptures and say, admit, as you're looking at it, I don't know what I'm reading, I don't understand what I'm reading, like the Ethiopian eunuch or the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Uh, but also it, it puts your own morality above the morality of God. And if I'm going to judge, if I'm going to stack up my own morality and all the things that I think are right and wrong or the things that I have done versus a holy, pure, and perfect God, I think I'd be foolish to say that I am more pure and holy and perfect than God.
0: It's, it's not only intellectual immaturity, but, it, and this is, I think, the point of this section for, for Dr. Pieper, it is it's spiritual ignorance of the highest degree. It, you, you By rejecting the absolute you can only have uh, something that's totally insolvent, right? It's like it's the non-denominator. It, it's the thing that cannot stand. It, it's it's a castle built on sand. No matter what. I mean, if you're going to have a religion, to the point about Islam earlier. If you're going to have a, le- a religion, at least have one that like claims to be true. <laughs> hey, what good is it yeah. to have this uh, this spiritual gushiness out there? Closing thoughts, guys.
1: I agree. If it's not true, uh, what's really the point? And, and honestly. I mean, if G, I mean, I think Paul, Paul, Paul in first Corinthians, that's the heart of it. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then really, what is the point? We should eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die and that's it. Uh, it's only the resurrection of Jesus that makes the difference every single day that I get up, uh, in the morning. Uh, otherwise there, there I'm, I'm, I would not only would I not be a pastor, I wouldn't be part of the Christian faith. Uh, it, it, it's it's pointless and so really jesus is everything
3: <laughs> i'm actually surprised Pieper doesn't reference uh second peter one here um no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit
0: I don't have a closing thought. That's uh, Pastor Matthew Gunia. If you, uh, I wonder if he does that on his sermons, <laughs> his Sermons too. If you want to find out, you can visit Ascension Lutheran Church in Niles, Illinois. Uh, we've also been talking with Pastor Timothy Winterstein of Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington, and Pastor Jeffrey Reese, Senior Pastor of Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church of Tacoma, Washington, about, well, truth, the absoluteness of Christianity. Thank you, gentlemen, for being on the show today.
1: Thank you. I Thank appreciate, you. appreciate it.
0: I told these guys ahead of time I didn't think we'd get very far because the, the topic in these Bible verses, they, they have plenty to speak about. And I think the, the closing thought uh, from Pastor Winterstein, again, it sums up mine pretty well. It was well, Paul's thought. St. Paul's own thought. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, we're to be pitied above all people. And as much as there are Christians out there, they're going to say, I can believe Jesus has risen from the dead and I don't have to trust the Bible to be entirely true. It's a fool's errand. It's a fool's errand. It's trying to to grasp the wind because the moment you let go of the scriptures, well, it may not be your faith that dies, but the generation which follows you, it most definitely will because they will come along and they will like just a little bit less of it than you do. And the ones after them will like just a little bit less of it than you do. And so on and so forth. Until at long last, they're left, well, as a certain people were about 2,000 years ago, standing face to face with the Almighty God himself and entirely unable to recognize him. Because the God they had made after their own image had so destroyed their faith that they had none left. That's what we hope doesn't happen to you. That's why you're listening to his time here on Worldwide KFUO. We know you listen to get the good news. That's what we are, the messenger of good news. And we are listener-supported. That means we rely on your giving to KFUO to help Cross Defense and KFUO stay on the air and coming to you via the Internet. So if you have not yet become an annual contributor to KFUO Radio, please consider doing so. You can become a day sponsor that's having one day all to yourself, not entirely, but you get your name on the radio and whatnot. Sponsoring KFUO is $480 a year. That's less than 40 bucks a month. That's just a little more than a dollar a day. You might consider doing that. You can go to KFUO.org for more information about how to give. Let them know when you do that the reason you're giving is your hunger for more cross-defense. I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Until next time. Rock on.